Hello and welcome to the Field Guides. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. And what we're going to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out into the field and share with you everything that we've learned. And we got to say, it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> we it say is. every month, but what we mean is most every month. <laughs> That's right. So it's been, what, three months since our last episode? Yep. So our last episode was in July, I think. Mm-hmm. That was July of 2019. It is now October 19th. Of... Yeah. So Bill did the July episode. Then I was supposed to do the September episode. <laughs> and I just got way too bogged down with work. And... Uh, no, I had no. to let everyone down. I think you were supposed to do the August episode. I was supposed to do the September episode. Right, 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 right. I totally <laughs> skipped a month there. Yeah. It's, Sorry, guys. It's both of our fault. But yeah. folks, we do have to say we appreciate the people that have reached out and mm -hmm. said, are you guys still alive? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, that, it was really nice to hear. I'm glad there's people that, that care about the podcast. It actually is the perfect segue into today's topic because since our audience was probably feeling neglected, our mm -hmm. topic for this month is how autumn is the neglected season in climate change science. Yeah, and this is crazy, but I think Bill neglected you guys on purpose just to make this transition that much better. <laughs> I, I wish, I wish I, that was how it went, yeah. But it, <laughs> I don't it, wish that, actually. <laughs> since, since it is October, uh, we are making this uh, episode pumpkin flavored. Oh no, what do you mean? <laughs> I don't mean anything. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just everything in the fall has to be, you know, pumpkin flavor. Sure, right, yeah, right, pumpkin yeah. Spice. So let's talk about where we are, though. This is a place we've never been before. Yeah. It's called Como Lake Park. Mm -hmm. and, and more specifically, <laughs> we are at Milkweed Knob. <laughs> Whatever that means. <laughs> it actually looks like it may have been a knob at one point, but it was uh, totally cut down. I mean, it's arguably more of a knob now. That's true. <laughs> we have this gigantic mound in front of us that's probably never been there before. So this is, is really a suburban park. Uh, lots of picnic shelters, uh, open areas. Yeah. Uh, we're going to try to find a decent place to record, but there is a creek here. We're yep. about 10 to 15 miles east of Buffalo, New York, and we are here on a beautiful fall day, so there's hardly any clouds in the sky. Yeah. It was a chilly morning, but it's warming up a little bit. Oh, yeah. But definitely puts, puts us in the mood for fall. But right now we're standing in a relatively open mode area, and it looks like they may be putting a, a baseball diamond in here. <laughs> yeah, so it goes. So I think even though it was called milkweed knob, I don't see any milkweed here at all. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> so Steve was saying as we were walking up that uh, maybe we need to find another site because he was trying to find some <laughs> decent time outside. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So uh, guys, uh, we, we do this podcast for us. <laughs> right. <laughs> we do it for you, but we also do it for us. And I feel like we're probably going to jump around a little bit just because Bill and I were not super familiar with Cobo Park and we want to make sure that we see some cool stuff here yeah. while we're recording. So. But I think uh, we can leave milkweed knob behind and kind of go back the way we came. Yeah, yeah. And we'll get started. Okay, so the research that I was doing, I actually had started out, geez, probably over a month ago, looking at papers dealing with autumn phenomena. Because we've done a spring one, mm -hmm. we've done a winter one, so I thought, oh, it'd be good to do a, an autumn one. Right, so uh, I know you're getting old, but <laughs> episode two yeah. was a fall episode. <laughs> right, but what I'm referring to is 
not episodes where we look at one specific phenomenon. Right, where right. I kind of did a, a collection, a grab bag, if you will. Sure, sure, Of sure. seasonal science. So I thought, and, oh. and I bet a lot of our listeners haven't been on since episode two. <laughs> so <laughs> Maybe. But yeah. folks, do go back and listen to the ones we did on kind of winter science and then on springtime science. But what I found is after collecting, I don't know, about eight or nine different papers, and then I sat down to go through them, generally speaking, to see which ones I might want to use. The first paper I looked at was so dense that I realized this could be an episode unto itself. So instead of looking at a grab bag of, of fall phenomena, we're going to look at mm -hmm. this one paper, and it was called Autumn, the Neglected Season in Climate Change Research. Do you know what's kind of funny? Sorry, I'm going to cut in. No, go ahead. <laughs> it's because in the past, what we used to do more is find a bunch of primary research articles. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel like now what we're doing is finding more reviews. Because <laughs> it's like instead of writing our own review of a topic, we're right. just finding professional <laughs> reviews of a topic. We let someone else do it. We're, we're delegating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this appeared in Trends in Ecology and Evolution, and that was uh, in 2015. Now, before I get into it, I feel we need to define some terms. Okay. And since Steve has the more technical training, he's going to define the terms for us. So okay. Steve, tell everybody, what is phenology? Oh, phenology. So that is... All right, it's been a while since I've thought about it, but that is kind of like the seasonality of a thing. And the timing, right? And the, Yeah, the timing of a thing. In fall, you, would, you could talk about the phenology of... Leaf color change. Right. This is going to have to do a lot with phenology, so I'll try to use phenology kind of interchangeably with timing. I don't know if that's exactly correct, but okay. that's what I'm going to be doing. And then also tell everybody, what does the word senescence mean? Oh, so senescence is when something is... I don't want to make it too simplistic, because I, I, I don't want to say like dying back. So let's talk, what is leaf senescence? Leaf senescence, okay, so I guess that's... the. Although I, maybe, I'm, maybe I want to say more than is actually true. I was thinking like the reabsorption of nutrients out of a leaf and then eventually the leaf being discarded from the plant. We can put that under the umbrella term of leaves changing color and falling off the tree. Got it. Did I just say leaves? <laughs> I think I did. <laughs> we're not perfect. No. All right. We're going to start off just by generally saying in, in temperate and arctic ecosystems, autumn remains a relatively neglected season when you're looking at climate change research. So one example of this they gave in the paper is they looked in, into the publication database Scopus. Have you heard about this? No. So I guess it's you know a way to look up different research papers. There's only about a half to a third as many climate change studies set in autumn as compared to spring. Oh, okay. So poor fall, it's getting neglected. Right. And they asked the question, why does this neglect exist? And they said, well, there's probably a few reasons. This includes the complexity of drivers of autumn phenology, so the timing of autumn phenomena. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I loved how they said, it probably has to deal with the human enchantment with the sudden burst of spring flowers and wildlife following winter. Hmm. So people are just more drawn to those spring phenomena. And then also- Well, uh, never mind, never mind. I was about to jump in about maybe something semester related, but no, that's uh, no, not- no. <laughs> I was going to say exactly the same thing. But people are in school during this time, which when you're dealing with coursework, it's harder. But but in spring, you're also dealing with coursework. Yeah, I guess so. But isn't summer kind of the big field season? Yeah, summer is. So I've heard I've actually heard winters neglected for having a small, you know, maybe like month and a half potential field season, you know, break for a field season. But but I could totally see people ending their field season 
you know, in, come July and August, they're getting mm -hmm. back into the fall season. They're not going to be jumping back out into field research as often. Right. Yeah. But this is totally, we're well, guessing. Yeah. So it, it makes sense that fall would be neglected compared to summer. Right. But you're saying fall's neglected compared, compared to, to spring. spring. That is true. Yeah. yeah. Now, jumping back to what we just said, though, with the human enchantment, with the sudden burst of spring flowers and wildlife. Right. We're all, we're all breaking out of our depression. I brought some evidence of that fact. Whoa, what's that? So this is completely anecdotal, but I have in my hands a, a little black book, a little black <laughs> calendar from 2000, right? Whoa. So take a look here. This is my calendar of recording of natural phenomena, the timing of natural phenomena in our area. And you've been keeping this for the last decade? Two decades. This 2000, sorry. 2000. Right. All right. So take a look. Now stop for a second. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to flip through it. So hardly anything in January and February. Uh-huh. Look at March. Whoa, March. Oh, April's April. blown up. May, May is blowing up. June. Uh-huh. Things start to slow down. Well, you know. Oh, no. Summer's still going strong. June and or, July. Actually, summer just started where we were. Okay. Yeah, July. Yeah. So we still have a lot in there. But then as we get into... Oh, yeah. That, that, so usually every line of a day would be completely filled up for, yep. for every day. But now that we're into August, Bill has two days in a week that have a single line or two lines. Yep, American Germander flowering, Baneberry and Fruit, 2004. Yeah. Jack and the Pulpit Berries, 2008. Mm -hmm. Just one line in early August. And, you know, it picks up a little bit in oh, fall, uh, yeah, but the, not much. Right? Yeah. They have a lot of, most days most, are empty. Most weeks have a single line on a single day. Yeah. Yeah, wow, so, okay. <laughs> so even you're falling for it. And then there was one other piece of possible evidence that they gave. And that is fall events are often protracted. They often take place over a longer period of time than, say, spring events do. Okay. And they get into that more in the paper. We're going to talk about that more. So all this is despite important things that happen in autumn. I mean, we already talked about leaf senescence. Mm -hmm. A lot of fruits ripen in autumn. And then you also, of course, have bird and insect migration happening. Right. There's the beginning of hibernation. And then another term I need you to define. I didn't want to throw too many at the beginning. Okay. What is diapause? Oh, diapause is just sort of a rest period. So plants would go into diapause, like seeds would go into diapause, right? The definition that I found, it actually referred just to, oh, gray squirrel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we just scared him away. It actually just referred to, well, here, I'll give you the yeah. definition yeah. that I found. A period of suspended development in an insect other invertebrate or mammal embryo. Oh, shoot. Especially during unfavorable environmental conditions. <laughs> now I feel bad about my wrong answer. No, that's all right. I almost wanted to be cut out, but it's okay. <laughs> that's how we learn. Steve. Yeah. <laughs> so in mammals, did you ever heard that white-tailed deer have delayed implantation? No, no, no. I've heard of, can't remember which one I know of. Another species Yeah, of there's another species, yeah. Because this is one of those moments where I'd been teaching people. It's bears, black bears. Oh, okay, but there is yep. a species of deer, mm -hmm. not a species local to us. Yeah. But I had always taught people that white-tailed deer have delayed implantation, but oh. I could find no evidence of that. Mm -hmm. I didn't find anything that said they don't do it specifically. Yeah. But in every account I was looking for of white-tailed deer, it never mentioned that they do have delayed implantation. So what we're talking mm -hmm. about, folks, is there are some mammal species that once fertilization happens after mating, the fertilized egg, there's delayed implantation into the uterine wall until conditions are favorable. Yeah, right. Right? So that does happen in some species of rodents, bears, armadillos. 
uh, mustelids, and then there's some kinds of marsupials that happens in. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about how things can change in autumn because of climate change, there can be changes in things like reproductive outcomes. So how many young they're having. Mm -hmm. It can make invasions worse if we're talking about invasions of invasive species. <coughs> Gesundheit. Thank you. <laughs> Should we leave that in? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it can, we're, we're leaving it all in today, yeah. Bill. <laughs> it can also cause higher disease transmission rates. It can cause changes in predator-prey dynamics. Now, I just want to know, are, are you just talking about the effect climate change broadly will have on these things? Yes. So okay. this paper is looking at how climate change and factors related to climate change, but chiefly temperature, changing temperature. Okay. is going to impact things in autumn. Okay. Now, I feel like I need to kind of step back and go through that list of, of autumn events because really I'm going to kind of look at each of these things. Right. So it can change reproductive outcomes. It can make invasions worse, allow higher disease transmission rates. It can reshuffle those dynamics of predator-prey. Mm -hmm. It can also shift dynamics among interacting species, even if it's not predator-prey relationships. Okay. And then it can also affect what's called the net productivity of ecosystems. Now, for folks that don't know, you're just dealing with the energy that's being produced by the organisms mm -hmm. within an ecosystem. Yeah. So the paper did get a lot into that. I'm not going to delve too much into that because I felt that I wouldn't be able to do it justice in the time we have and still talk about everything else in the paper. But we'll put this paper up for people to look at. Now, one thing I do have to point out, in the paper, when they mentioned predator-prey, I just found it strange. Is it just me? But they referred to natural enemy prey dynamics. I, I saw that word enemy. I thought, boy, that's weird. That seems like a human thing to put on there. Enemy. Why change the lingo now? <laughs> maybe as I'm talking, you know, I'm thinking maybe they would consider it a quote unquote enemy because maybe it's not just predators. It could be competition in other ways. I don't know. It made me uncomfortable. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's making me uncomfortable because now I'm trying to feel like, or, and I wish I had the study in front of me so, so I could just look to see the context exactly that it was in. But I will say I put into Google Scholar mm -hmm. just those terms, enemy, prey. Yeah. And they're not the only paper to refer to the relationships in that way. Okay, so this must so. be like an e ecological topic that I'm not as read up yeah. on. Now, I will say this was a British paper. Mm. So, you know, they, sometimes they say things... They're like, there's an enemy-prey dynamic near that Johnny on the spot. No, what, what do they say? What are some other weird things that they say? They say aluminum. Right? Aluminum. <laughs> right. Yeah. we got to work that into an example. Yeah. All right. So in this study, they did give a nice overview of the existing understanding of autumn phenology, that mm -hmm. timing. And that's really what we're going to talk a lot about. And then they went into some areas that were ripe for future autumn slash climate change research. Okay. So that's just giving you an idea of what's coming in this episode. Mm -hmm. All right. Do you want to walk? Yeah, sure. All right. So let's talk about what we know about autumn. In temperate ecosystems, which is all around us right now. Yeah, that's us. Yep. <laughs> the autumn phenomena with the most attention in climate change is leaf senescence. Mm -hmm. And then also the other big one is migratory bird departures. Right. Those have been the two sexiest topics that have gotten the most attention. Yeah, I can confirm that anecdotally. Yeah. We're friends with a lot of bird people and then we're tree people. Right. And then insect diapause and fruit ripening, mm -hmm. they've gotten moderate interest, but the dark corners of autumn phenomena are amphibian dormancy and bud formation. Those are the topics that are less studied and poorly understood. You know what? I'm gonna take it back. I have something else to note. Okay. 
episode one and episode two of our podcast yeah. were both fall things. <laughs> and that was uh, golden rods and then uh, leaf color change. So, right. Yeah. And I feel like the longer we're doing this, every episode we do, there's going to be more and more callbacks to previous episodes. <laughs> right. It's inevitable. But I, but I mean, it's kind of funny. We just started with fall stuff. I guess we started in September, that right? That makes so, sense. Yeah. yeah. So despite this neglect, ecologists, they have made progress in understanding the drivers behind autumn phenology and the effects that climate change has on these things. Mm -hmm. So that's what I want to kind of give an overview of now. All right, I just got to stop for a second because I got to say, man, we're on the banks of a creek. This is Cayuga Creek. Yeah. We have a nice big, what do you think, a walnut here? I think it's a walnut. Yeah. I think you're right. Juglins nigra. Yeah. Yeah. And we have, unfortunately, multiflora rose, an invasive species. It is in fruit, though. <laughs> yeah. So we can hips. eat some as a snack. Yeah. The Call rose back. hips. Call back to rose hip episode. Oh, yeah. We did a multiflora rose. Multiflora blows. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then we have the grapevines here. The grapes are ripening around us. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what do you think increasing temps are going to do? I'm going to give you some different fall phenomena. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I want you to tell me what you think increasing temps are going to do to their timing. Okay. So what is higher temps going to do to fruit ripening? What do you think that's going to do? Is it going to make it come later or sooner? Oh boy. I think, man, I feel like there's so many potential answers. So now I'm not afraid to get it wrong. I'm going to say, I bet it's more about daylight than it is about temperature in terms of fruits. Uh, you'll get a difference in the quality because of the heat, but I would say the fruit will be the same, but it'll definitely have different compounds in it. Right, but do you think, I'm just talking about the timing. Yeah, I think the timing will be the same. I'm assuming oh, that okay. maybe fruit development might be similar to leaf senescence. All right, so on average, fruit is ripening sooner in the fall. Okay, sooner, so okay. What we'd say is it's advancing fruit okay. ripening. What about insect diapause? This one's a little more straightforward. It would hold off until it got colder. Right, so it's yeah. gonna delay it. What about bird departures for migration? Oh, Tri it's been delaying. Trick we question, it's mixed. Oh, okay, because I, I, I don't know. I thought we said it in another episode where migration on average, when you take it all into account, has moved a week or two weeks or something. I don't remember. And you know what? We but it could have... be in different areas. We might right. have specifically been talking about maybe like the northeast the east or something. Yeah, right. the northeast. Yeah. And I was just going to say, we may have totally said that. I'm sharing what we, was shared we may, in this paper. may have made too bold of a claim. Yeah. yeah. And then leaf senescence, that's going to be delaying it. Now, though I'm going to be saying those general statements, they have caveats, all right? Mm -hmm. So fruit ripening of native plants, that's really the only autumn event within the ones they looked at that they're aware of having advanced. Everything okay. else, because of increasing temperatures, seems to be delaying. Insects have responded to warmer autumn temperatures. If you think about it, they're going to develop faster, mm -hmm. right? So then they're prob they might potentially add generations. Yep. And that's usually going to delay their migration in diapause. Conditions are good. So I'm going to delay leaving. I'm going to delay going into a state of dormancy. I would assume that with insects, just just a like a guess, pure guess, that as long as it's warm, they would stick around. And I'm sure it's more temperature based, but I could also see it being a daylight thing as well. You know, maybe they notice that somehow that might have a, a sense for that type of thing. But also keep in mind, too, if temperatures get too warm for some insects. Mm -hmm. There could be a, a threshold at which it becomes too warm for them, right? That's true. Yeah, yeah. And, and we will talk about that. Now, before I, I look at those bird departures and leaf senescence, they, they did put a little note in here that studies at the community and landscape levels show that invasive non-native plants, so like multiflora rose that mm -hmm. we just talked about, they can gain an advantage over natives by extending their growing seasons into autumn. 
We, we had talked about that before yeah. in another episode that they, they leaf out earlier in the spring, which we always see. And then, yeah, they, they'll, they'll keep going even further into the fall. So, yeah. so this allows them to sequester more carbon and that in turn alters local climate and ecosystems. So long-term data sets indicate that leaf senescence is on average delayed by increasing temperatures, but, and then there's, they give a huge but here, because then there's this paragraph that kind of explains why you can't really link it totally to temperatures. Hmm. So in spring, the temperature does explain most of the variation in leafing out times. At least that's what the research seems to show. But in autumn, it's more weakly linked to temperatures. Hmm. And it's even more weakly linked to the combination of temperature and photo period. Hmm. All right. So there's all these factors right. that you can consider individually, and then all these factors linked. There's also other less predictable factors. For example, drought can advance leaf coloring and leaf drop. Yeah. And the opposite, when there's abundant soil moisture, it's going to delay it. Right. Uh, well, just just as an example, you can have a lot of leaf senescence in the summer if you have a drought. Right. You'd even get the leaf reddening because the less water there is and the more risk there is for a plant to be able to open its stomata, release oxygen, take in more carbon dioxide. Because if it's water's already scarce, you want to lose as little water as possible. So you're probably pumping in some anthocyanins in your leaves. So you'll probably get the reddening. You're going to get some leaf senescence. And that's something that I saw when I was in Illinois. There was a huge drought that year, especially in the south. It looked like New York in the fall <laughs> in <laughs> southern Illinois. Yeah. In the summer. Yeah, and yeah. in the summer, yep. And then there can also be early frost events and high winds. That can result in sudden leaf senescence. And then abscission. And remember, that's when the layer forms between the branch and the petiole. Mm -hmm. so, petiole of the leaf. Petiole yep. of the leaf, yeah. Air pollution in the form of tropospheric ozone. That can induce early senescence. Hmm. But then they also said, which I found surprising, local CO2 concentrations have been reported to have little to no effect. On Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So these are the effects from climate change aren't directly linked to local CO2 levels, but it has more to do with a combination of moisture levels, photo period, hmm. temperatures, all these things seem to be working together. Okay. And then let's get into bird departures, bird migration. Mm -hmm. Long-term data. They indicate that birds are shifting their timing in response to climate change with short distance migrants generally delaying migration. So the blue jays that we've been hearing around us today, yeah. they're probably going to stick around a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. And some long distance migrants are leaving earlier. Okay. But they went on to say that, look, bird migration, it's driven by so many factors. Right. And these include species specific interactions and then environmental conditions, things like temperature, photo period. You also have the life history traits. They use the term broodedness. Broodedness. <laughs> Which I love. What do you think it is? Is that just the, the number of broods yeah. that they do in one summer? Because there's a number of birds that do two broods yep. or you know maybe even three. Maybe even more, yeah. yeah. And then there's also wintering location. What time they arrived in the spring. And, and wintering location, sometimes you have like lateral migration. So right. you're, you're not really moving to a warmer part yeah. of the country. You're just, just moving to a different part different of the country. Part. Yeah. Yeah. And the degree of influence of all of these drivers varies widely, even among species, hmm. and then even among geographies, even just among locations. So it, yeah. it could be impacting our blue jays here in Western Europe differently from blue jays in Illinois. Bill, just give me one answer. I know. <laughs> just give me one thing to grasp onto. Things are changing. <laughs> okay. All right. Now we're going to get into some of the methods that researchers use. Okay. And what we talk about here the authors of this paper are saying this could be a reason 
this could be another reason that autumn is neglected mm-hmm. in how do I want to say this in the research base in the, the yeah yeah I don't All know right. <laughs> I, I know this could be one of the reasons that autumn is the neglected season the neglected season in research literature okay so compared to spring studies autumn phenology autumn timing mm-hmm. they face a lot bigger methyl I knew I was going to have a methodological. Time. Yes, thank you. Challenges. <laughs> like, think about it. Defining event, like leaf senescence. You and I doing separate studies, we may have different definitions of when does leaf senescence begin, when does it end. Right. So, standardizing methodologies is a big problem. And also, usually you have to treat autumn phenomena as multiple day events. It's not going to happen just on one day. For example, many autumn studies about leaf senescence or fruit maturation, mm-hmm. they're based on subjective observations such as 50% leaf fall or descriptions of fruit colors. Like if you say, oh, that fruit is purple. <laughs> right. <laughs> that could mean a lot of different things. So to get into standardizing methodologies, spring events such as leaf out or mm-hmm. insect emergent, those are fairly sudden and they're visually apparent. But autumn events like leaf senescence, fruit ripening, bird and butterfly migration, these are all protracted. And often they don't all happen at the same time, even within a certain geographic location. Man, I want to know how how would you even do that? We talk about that. Okay, because I want to know the first idea that came to mind. Set up a permanent camera looking at some trees and just have a program that measures the green that it picks up. (laughs) So we'll talk about later using a chlorophyll filter. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So just just taking samples at different times? Right. Okay. Yeah, standardize it, basically. Right, because in the fall, that's what a lot of uh, trees are doing, is that chlorophyll has nitrogen in it. So you don't want to just drop a bunch of nitrogen onto the ground. You want to reabsorb that into the tree. You maybe store it somewhere, like in the roots or something. And then you'll just let the really cheap things to make, like carotenoids or anthocyanins, fall off with with the leaf itself. Because those things are like carbon Easy you know to come back. yeah those are the, the, it's nothing yeah it's like pasta <laughs> <laughs> all of these terms that you're throwing around having yeah. to do with fall colors folks i really would say to go back and listen to our fall colors episode because if you haven't listened to it i think that's one of our best episodes i will say if you can tolerate poor editing <laughs> listen to our first 16 or so episodes and then you know every now and then we'll do something bad but but uh those first group are a little bit rough but in terms of content <laughs> yeah they're way better oh i i love those episodes yeah poke weed every day that's yeah. easily one of my favorite episodes of all time but it was so far back i, I know we can't redo it but uh, that was such a good one everything came together <laughs> we still need to do an episode zero yeah because it, it kills me that I know a lot of people out there are starting with episode one. That's what I would have done. And yeah. going back to listening to it, we're so nervous. We're so <laughs> subdued in our delivery. Yeah. There was a lot of l- nervous laughter in episode yeah. one, for sure. Not yeah. like now. No. <laughs> Bill and I weren't friends until episode one. <laughs> Actually, I think we've gotten closer since episode one, I bet. I think so. Yeah. But we see each other less. In a few years. Yeah. Somehow, we see each other less. Maybe but... that's why. Yeah. <laughs> our lives have only gotten better. Yeah. <laughs> So definitions of leaf out in spring, those are fairly similar across studies. They occur within days of one another, but date of senescence in fall, it ranges from the date of first leaves changing color to the date of 100% abscission. And those can occur weeks apart. But so, I, like, I like using 100% abscission that because would, that's easy enough. 
Because if even if there's one leaf on there, I'm sure they're it's not I'm that sure they're, they're looking for like a 98 percent or more or something, yeah. you know, which is still an estimate. And fruits typically mature over an extended period as, as well. It's part of their reproductive and dispersal strategy. They're not all going to fruit at the same time. Mm-hmm. And this contrasts with that sudden and brief flowering window for many species in spring. So it's often not possible to give single dates to a lot of autumn phenomena. By the way, I, sorry, I just want to go back. Yeah. I think I'm, I bet I'm wrong about that. I bet that they actually do wait for every last leaf to fall off. Because if they're calling it complete leaf abscission, I bet that the, it's worth... Yeah, but are you talking about a I'm single s- tree or... I don't know their methods at all, but I know if they if they were looking on the tree level, like let's say they had a certain number of trees that they looked at, yeah. even if there was one... The thing that was getting me worried was if there was one leaf left behind, <laughs> the whole tree was on there. Then you have to make sure that it's not like a spider webbing the leaf <laughs> right. to the tree, you know... So I'm wondering if they have a little bit of give because some things like that happen where you get a leaf stuck on the tree, but it's not really stuck on the tree anymore. It's there for kind of artificial purposes, uh, you know, that maybe another species is doing it. So as you're seeing, just from thinking about this right now, it's (laughs) It's complicated. It's tricky. So think about this, because this didn't really occur to me. Absence can be more challenging to observe than presence. Uh So think about how it's more difficult to observe the last date of activity for a species in fall. Oh my God, think about beech trees. (laughs) They hold on to their leaves for the whole winter. A lot of them do, yeah. And oak trees, right? (laughs) Yeah, oaks do that too. What's that called? Do you remember what that's called? uh, Being stubborn? No, Wild Ideas talked about it one time. I can't remember. Yeah, I don't remember what it's called. But think about it. In an area here in Western New York, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of people that are looking for the first red-winged blackbird or... Okay. You know, the first yellow warbler. But it's hard to say, all right, this is the last date (laughs) for yellow warblers. Right. Because it's very easily you could be missing one. Right. So that absence can be more challenging. And in the case of birds, there's a lot of autumn behaviors that are less conspicuous. Mm -hmm. They're not trying to broadcast their presence like they are in the breeding season. Right. Yeah. Much more cryptic. Yeah. Have you heard about the catbird whisper song? No, I don't think so. so. I may have mentioned this on an episode before, but I was just reading that in the fall, catbirds will make their, their chattering call, but it's at a much lower volume. How can we convince them to do that year-round? <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> They're the worst. <laughs> There's way worse. Listen to those blue jays. No, no, I'm fine with blue jays. <laughs> They're the, they're the trolls of the natural world. And that's uh, it depends on what you're into, but I like trolls a little bit. I like thinking that they're calling because we're here. They're letting everybody know that there's two jerks in the forest. Yeah, we get it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so now we're gonna talk about invasive species, pests, and pathogens in autumn. But before we do that, why don't we walk a little bit? We keep stopping. Sure, yeah. I find we do that a lot. Yeah, and we gotta prepare for the winter because when we stop in the winter, it gets (laughs) bad and suddenly you can't feel your toes anymore. Yeah. All right, now we're entering the forest of Japanese knotweed here. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, this is nice. So this is Cayuga Creek. This is what flows into the Buffalo River and then on to Lake Erie. Got some low-key rapids going on. <laughs> okay, so I said we were going to talk about invasive species a little bit. I think you can agree that they're more responsive to warmer autumn temperatures and later freezing events than many native species. It's one of the reasons they do better, right? Right. But why are they more responsive? I, a lot of people have said that they're just more flexible for some reason. There's a reason that they became invasive is that they could change with the new environment easier. Phenotypic plasticity. Okay, a word that we've used plenty of times. Yeah, yeah. so just remind people, what is that referring to, phenotypic plasticity? Right. So let's just use the word, uh, let's start with the word phenotype. Right. So phenotype is a, a way a trait is expressed. Right. 
So that could be the height of a plant, it could be the color of leaves, it can be all these different traits. Uh, it could even be in an animal, maybe a behavior, or even in a plant. They'll have different habits and all that. Um, and then plasticity is just the flexibility of, a, of, of something. So it's really just the flexibility of traits. So I think guess. of a piece of plastic and being able to bend it without yeah. breaking. Right? Plasticity, plastic, yeah. flexible, yeah. So they, in this paper, they refer to the reasons being phenotypic plasticity mm -hmm. and rapid evolution. Okay. okay. So there was one study that found many non-native invasive shrub species in our eastern U.S. gained an advantage of greater fall carbon assimilation. So as we just mentioned a few minutes ago, they're keeping their leaves longer, mm -hmm. so they're assimilating more carbon, and that's over native shrub species through delayed leaf senescence. And that's rather than earlier leaf out in spring. So mm. this particular study said, no, it's not leafing out earlier in spring that's really the big advantage. Okay. It's that they're hanging on to leaves longer. Got it. All right? Yep. I'm going to actually read a section of this study because I thought they explained it really well. Mm -hmm. They did a three-year study of 43 native and 30 non-native shrub species common to our deciduous forests. And then again, this is Eastern US. Okay. And then it showed extended autumn leaf phenology is a common attribute of Eastern US forest invasions. And that's where non-native species extend their autumn growing season, listen to this, by an average of four weeks compared with natives. Whoa, so okay. pretty much a month, they're, they're hanging onto their leaves longer. Yeah. In contrast, they found no consistent evidence that non-natives as a group showed earlier spring growth timing. Just particular species that yep. would show that. So yes, there are definitely some species, like we know around here, we have Tartarian honeysuckle. Mm -hmm. That definitely leaves out. I was out. gonna say honeysuckle, and I'm just thinking of Zor Valley, one of the, the last places I went for like a hike in the spring. Yeah. It was only honeysuckle and uh, multi-floor rose. Right. That was the only green that I saw in the whole place. And what yeah. time of year was that? late winter early spring. yeah something like that it was uh march or april or something yeah. i don't remember so they went on to say that most non-natives they meet a significant proportion of their carbon needs after canopy leaf fall and now that was a behavior that was virtually absent in natives and it was consistent across five phylogenetic groups and then these differences suggest that in eastern u.s forests the invaders are driving a seasonal redistribution of forest productivity that may rival climate change and its impact on forest processes. Oh. Right? So this hmm. is big things that are happening. So right. this lengthening growing season is going to contribute to the advantage that some invasive species might have over many native shrubs. And you kind of mentioned this before. It can be considered a bet hedging strategy to maintain viable leaves despite that increasing risk of frost damage. Yeah. Basically saying, I'm going to hang on to my leaves as long as I can right. because I'm going to get more of an advantage than I would take a hit if there was a frost no that can make a lot of sense like if you're if you're able to store more nitrogen let's say yeah from staying around for four more weeks even if you lose that leaf ultimately as long as you're getting more out of it over that four week period then that's fine yeah. you know the, the loss isn't as isn't as bad as what you gained and i would say this reading this changed my thinking because just overall when i think of climate change and how it's helping non-natives like i just seem to think that oh they're going to leaf out a lot sooner they're going to get like kind of a jump start on everything. Mm -hmm. But what this paper is saying is, no, they're getting more an advantage later in the season. Yeah. I, I mean, looking here, this Japanese knotweed, I mean, the leaves are still. Looks pretty like, green still. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a lot of yellow, but yeah, yeah. they're hanging on. All right, so let's look at what this is going to mean for insect pests. 
So we mentioned, I mentioned a little bit before that these warmer temperatures, they're going to speed development up. And they'll, and they'll stick around a little bit longer. Yeah, it's going to delay that diapause. Many insects are going to produce more generations in these warmer, longer growing seasons. They gave uh, two examples, the spruce beetles and Douglas fir beetles. Mm -hmm. Their development can either be disrupted or delayed with warmer autumn temperatures, extending both their capacity for reproduction and then also their feeding activity. So these guys are going to stick a lot around longer. Mm -hmm. Now this can have consequences for human health. Why? Think about if the fall is longer and warmer, who's going to stick around? Ticks. Ticks, exactly. <laughs> right? Mosquitoes and ticks. So yeah. it can, it, wow, Steve, nice. <laughs> so it, I'm, I'm just thinking look, of, uh, of, of uh, Wayne Gall, that's all. Look at, my, look at my notes. Warmer autumns can mean extended activity of ticks and mosquitoes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the only reason I say that is because that's where my mind jumps to, because a friend of the show, uh, Wayne Gall, Dr. Wayne Gall, yeah. um, he was a medical entomologist for years, and that's what he studied, ticks and mosquitoes. Yeah. So that's where my mind goes. So these guys, especially ticks, they can continue to look for blood meals as long as temps remain above their activity thresholds. Yeah. That's going to increase the potential for Lyme disease. And then the delaying onset of winter, it allows those mosquitoes to stick around longer as well as the viruses they're carrying. Mm -hmm. So West Nile virus infections are higher in the fall. Oh, I haven't heard that one in about a decade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because Lyme disease is taking all the spotlight. Right. And other mosquito vectors are known to take a larger fraction of their blood meals from mammals in the fall following the departure of migratory birds. Oh, I didn't even know that birds were a big target for them. Yeah. So a lot of studies that have focused on invasive species, pests and pathogens, and how they stand to benefit from climate change, but there's also going to be some that are disadvantaged. For instance, some insect pests that experience faster development times and, and more generations Others respond to increased temperatures when the temps are beyond their optimum range with slower development times, lowered reproduction, and increased mortality. So more huh. dying. So many sap-feeding insects, they're going to respond to water-stressed host plants with shorter lifespans and higher dispersal rates. We can also expect changes within species by region. So think of right. our ash trees and the emerald ash borer. Right. Right? Agrilis. Planipennis. <laughs> Good job. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever said that before. Either No, I, I don't think I have either. So ash trees that are occurring at lower latitudes, those are predicted to experience decreased herbivory from the beetles. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I never even thought of that. I mean, it's too late for them, but... <laughs> <laughs> ash trees are done. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Actually, I did notice it really, really bad this summer. Yeah. Driving down the thruway, you know, uh, there's just dead trees everywhere. Yeah. And I was like... Oh no, this is the middle of summer. Starting to see the impacts. Yeah, right. But at the southern end. A lot end, of standing dead wood though, so uh, maybe the woodpeckers like it. There you go. Yeah. So at the. Ooh. What? That'd be an interesting study. I wonder if people have uh, looked at that. How the dying of ash trees are impacting other species. Yeah. There you go. Hmm. There's your PhD. I mean, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I've stepped away from that world. <laughs> but I think on the southern edge of the ash range, they may have some respite from the ash borer. Hmm. If that overlaps where temperatures increase enough mm -hmm. that it's going to drive their range a little north maybe. I don't know. It's, hmm. so, it's so complex. But that is the perfect segue to my next section, which is on interspecies interaction. Okay. What's synchrony? I, I can only guess <laughs> based on the obviousness of it. Right. But maybe two species sync their actions together yeah, somehow. it's timing yeah. it's all about yeah. timing 
I lobbed one at you there. Right. All right. Again, when we talk about climate change and the changing of timing mm -hmm. for different species and when they're doing what they're doing, we've talked about in the podcast before how in spring it's going to cause problems mm -hmm. because when certain things are flowering, when certain insects are emerging, if species that migrate, if their timing changes, that's going to cause problems. Right. Like you want the sap suckers to come in before the ruby-throated hummingbirds. <laughs> so, right. Because yeah. they're going to make the holes that the hummingbirds rely on. Yeah. Before the flowers are available. Yeah. yeah. So some insects are going to lay their eggs on particular fruits or plants. Do you know what a folivore is? Think about it. Folivore. Think about it. Does it eat foals? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Baby horses are drowned. <laughs> That's a super specific feeding strategy. There, there's, there's some species of toucan that could take out foals, I, I, I imagine. Folivores eat foliage. <laughs> you can only get that one here, folks. That's right. So asynchrony, obviously that's a, a mismatch in timing. That's right. going to result when interacting species experience differing timing shifts due to climate change or other factors, really. But mm -hmm. we're looking at climate change. Songbirds, in the fall, they're going to primarily consume fruits during mm -hmm. autumn migration. Frugivore. Very good. <laughs> and, but many plants rely on birds to disperse their seeds, right? Mm -hmm. So climate change, what's it doing to fruit ripening times on average? You said it, it uh, makes them happen earlier. They're advancing. Correct. If you also have songbirds that are delaying their departures, mm. that's really going to cause asynchrony to happen. Yeah, that's true. Because they definitely want to fill up right before they leave, right? Yeah. And to make matters worse, this mismatch it's going to change the songbird diets, particularly, we said it's short distance migrants that mm -hmm. are usually delaying, but invasive non-native plants often produce abundant fruit of low nutritional quality later into the autumn season. I was about to say that the main fruits that we have seen so far are rose hips from multiflora rose. Right. So it's going to make those invasives worse because now these birds who delay their departures are going to be spreading their seeds more often. Oh no. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> but these, these shifts, they still remain very little studied. Mm -hmm. So that's a that's an area ripe for more study. I quit the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now we're going to look at mismatches involving insects because this paper said it's both intriguing and largely unknown. Well, get this. What if uh, as I say, what if the birds go from fruits to insects, but that's a specific lifestyle choice right and there's way fewer <laughs> insects in the fall so even if they do stick around it's not going to make up for the biomass that the fruits would have yeah so because these these guys insects often have short generation times and large brood sizes the, the paper said that they have a great capacity for tracking climate changes mm -hmm. by the way i do want to throw in there that i said that birds have lifestyle choices <laughs> instead of natural histories i don't know where i was going with that but i, I let that one slide <laughs> Bill, you got to call me out on these things. All right. Yeah. Otherwise, the, the, the listeners might. All right. So we already talked about how birds and insects, if, if that timing doesn't match up, that can cause problems. And mm -hmm. insects that are feeding on developing seeds or fruit, if they experience a change, that's going to affect their, their timing of their development. Yeah. So additional broods are going to extend the presence of some insect species, and that's going to expose them to new predators, new parasites, and pathogens. So they gave you the example of, of one type of fly, the tachinid fly. Hmm. That was introduced here into North America from Europe to control gypsy moths. It's Compsilura consonata. It's now su successfully producing an additional fall generation in New England. So a oh. whole new generation. Okay. 
uh, and that parasitizes late season natat. Oh, let me see if I can get this right. A certain kind of moth caterpillar. Mm-hmm. Not, uh, you say it. Oh no! Oh, no. hold on, hold on. Uh, notodon, notodonad. <laughs> oh, cause, cause you go dont. So, notodonted, notodonted. <laughs> it still sounds weird. I think I, we're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable somehow. <laughs> so, so almost all the studies. Oop. Oh, we have a visitor. Is that just a female mallard? I think it is. Oh, <laughs> uh, I was really hoping it was something else. But it's pretty close. Yeah. Anis platyrhynchos. I know I know no ornithologists go by scientific name, but although you know what, mallards are interesting because they breed with like every other member of the Anis genus. They're the horse. <laughs> oh no, Bill. <laughs> We're gonna have to bleep that. We out. can't duck shame. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, and Bill said adult full anyway. That's what he was. That's what he meant. <laughs> So almost all these studies looking at asynchrony between parasite insects and hosts, those have looked at spring, when the, the mismatch in timing can be dramatic. But the authors here, they really go out of their way to say, hey look, these autumn phenomena, this mismatch, they're more subtle, but that doesn't necessarily mean their effects on population are gonna be smaller, hmm. right? Okay. So obviously more studies needed. Right. Even within a single taxon, a single group, the consequences of climate change, they're complex, and it's likely that there's gonna be positive and negative effects. So it's very difficult to say climate change, it's gonna have all negative or all positive. So, mm -hmm. and they give a, a good example, everybody loves monarch butterflies. Yeah. Several studies have warned, and I'm sure we've all heard this, that climate change threatens their overwintering roosts in Mexico. For sure, so they actually have it down to uh a science <laughs> and that is you can actually calculate the amount of forest that a certain number of butterflies would need necessarily so like carrying capacity right exactly so i've read studies in the past where they've been able to link deforestation in mexico to the population loss yeah to population loss because if they don't have those areas for refugia then they're kind of you know it doesn't matter how much we do for them up here yeah, like planting screwed. milkweed and everything else you, you need it from both ends so now <laughs> no, don't look. <laughs> I'm going to let that one slide too. Thank you. <laughs> so on top of the problems that are happening in Mexico, there's also evidence that droughts in South Central and Southwestern U.S., those have contributed to the butterfly's recent collapse across Eastern North America. Mm -hmm. However, warmer average temperatures and prolonged autumn-like conditions are favorable to larval development, mm -hmm. right? So it's gonna shift the milkweed range to make more plants available to monarchs in Canada and the Northern US. Okay. Right? So, but as you said, if they're screwed in Mexico. Right, right? That, that's gonna be the- the, um, the clincher? The funnel, I guess. Right, right. Yeah. but it makes me wonder, is there, as things shift north, will they be able to find a different refuge? Hopefully. Further north. Yeah, know? I don't know. Yeah. So we'll see. What's the difference between the you know the mountains in Mexico versus the you know the mountains in the, the mountains southern in the US. western yeah. yeah yeah like the southern end of the Rocky Mountains right right yeah what are they called in Mexico what the mountains yeah I don't know I don't know either I was trying to think of it all right I'm writing that down we're gonna look that up yeah we're gonna put that in the episode notes I try to be good with geography but uh, sometimes uh, we don't make it whoa that's so smart Bill <laughs> Bill has a uh, a post-it note. Yep. taped onto his uh, laminated <laughs> notes. Wow. 
I, I thought ahead there. All right, so we're at the uh, the home stretch here. Right, uh, and speaking of that, I've just become aware that maybe not all of our listeners are going to really like this water noise, so maybe we should move away from it. All right, so let's move on. Yeah. All right, as often happens at the end of the paper, at the end of the review, I should say, they give recommendations for what needs to change. And you can help me out with this, because they say researchers need to use factorial experiments in large-scale, multi-species observational studies. So it's a factorial experiment. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so we got to look that up, too. That's not, uh, I mean, that's... All right, Bill, so <laughs> when I said that's not my world anymore more earlier, what I was saying is that I've moved out of uh, ecology, and I've moved out of, like, wet labs. <laughs> I do a lot of dry lab stuff. I work with plant genomes. I do a lot of bioinformatics now. <laughs> so you've become less fun at yeah. parties. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Because uh, no one knows what you're talking about? Yeah. Except other people that work in your field. At least ecologists, I think, can relate to people. Because <laughs> they're outdoors. They you know, they know what's going on. But right. I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a world now where everyone just is indoors all the time. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to put that in the episode notes. Yeah, I don't know what a factorial study is. But we know what a large-scale multi-species observational study is. Do you yeah. know it's something that I heard way back when I was still in the ecology world? When you're looking at primary literature, this is what I was told. At the end of the paper where they're like, oh, but these are still the questions that we don't know the answers to, so more study is needed. That's kind of like the, the authors saying, like, I got dibs on this. Ah. But if you're a review article... I wonder if the authors of the review article are like, please, someone do this. That's what it seemed like. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and in fact, not just do it, but do a factorial study, multi-species. You're going to need a budget for this one. <laughs> so they want these studies to determine the factors that most impact autumn events. And then as well as the underlying, what they called phylogenetic signals. Okay. You want to give people what that means? You know what? I said okay to that, but I, I know what a phylogeny is. So we're looking at spe the relationships, the evolutionary relationships we have between species. Yeah. So maybe we want to look at things that are closely related and, and their roles, as well as things that maybe aren't as closely related, you know, and try to compare those things. But and maybe I, guess, the, I guess I don't know the specifics of what they're looking at. And maybe the signals that are triggering their behaviors? I guess, but... Uh, phylogenetic because that's specific to do with evolutionary relationships right. so I, I don't know all right most of what they talked about in this review it's coming from studies they say they're almost entirely small-scale observational studies okay so there needs to be big things done mm -hmm. and then the next thing they talked about is how to treat autumn events and we got into a little discussion earlier about this they said they really need to treat them as multiple day events rather than single dates, and the definitions need to be standardized when possible. Right. So researchers should record the beginning, duration, and end of autumn phenomena, and then analyze the changes in each of the variables. So this approach, it overcomes the challenge of developing single day definitions, and it really reflects reality. Right. When possible, researchers can aim to record metrics. So we talked about this. Things like chlorophyll content mm -hmm. or coloration on a continuous scale. Right. So that would make it possible to then determine rates of senescence and then points of inflection in the season. So when do things get worse or slow down a little bit? Right. And then the timing of markers such as 50% change. You could measure uh, leaf senescence using standardized techniques like the use of handheld chlorophyll meters yeah. or leaf litter measurements. 
and fruit ripening dates could be standardized with reference color samples. Mm -hmm. You could even measure sugar contents with refractometers. Right, yeah. A lot of those handheld devices are so nice. Yeah. Uh, there was a lab that I didn't end up working in, but they had a device that you could bring into the soil that you just put onto the soil and it would, it would measure soil respiration, which is like what the microbes are doing. Right. And you could measure it at any point in the year. You know, you wouldn't have to take samples back with you necessarily. So it's nice. Like as we move forward, yeah. a lot of things are, you know, you could do it right in the spot. In fact, a lab that I used to work in just um, maybe like half a year ago, we had a little device that is generally used for the field where you clamp it onto a leaf and it actually measures chlorophyll. It measures respiration it measures wow. all these things we weren't using it outdoors we were using it indoors uh, with plants that we were growing but it's amazing i didn't realize <laughs> that we that all these tools were were out there and all of this technology we're, we're kind of destroying the the earth to create all this new technology and this new technology is helping us to really understand how much we're destroying the earth <laughs> right <laughs> but i do have to think ultimately th there is worse technologies we could I be know. making <laughs> i'm just trying to make a joke here. i know i know I'm no fun at parties. You said it already. So, But it's funny you just mentioned that device that measured the microbial activity. Yeah. Because I actually, I'm at a line in my notes here that I was going to leave out. Because remember I talked about how I didn't want to get into too much into that net primary productivity yeah. and how climate change is affecting mm -hmm. it. But since you mentioned it, they talked about how... You, are you starting to believe in psychics? Because, uh, <laughs> Bill, I'm thinking magic might be real. <laughs> if, and maybe I just don't know that I have this gift. It's a magical coincidence. It's happened a few times already. <laughs> so they talked about how most studies lump subterranean respiration just kind of all together, especially mm -hmm. in the fall. But that really root and microbial respiration are really two different things. And they're happening at different rates. Mm -hmm. And that climate change is affecting them differently. Which right. I know to some people might sound like snore, but in this study, really, folks, I'd recommend reading this study. I, I find like reviews yeah. are, are way more readable. Sit down and read it through. Sure. You know? And, and I, I even have to say, even if we think about something like leaf drop, if leaf drop is changing, just Bill, when you think of what tea is, what is tea? Leaves. Yeah. So there's clearly going to be some leachate coming out of leaves, right? Yeah. And like with raining events and things. So that's definitely going to change what's present in the soil. If you have chemicals from leaves leaching into the soil, that's probably yeah. going to change. You would have to imagine they would do something to the microbial communities. Yeah. And if the timing of that is changing, maybe it messes with the timing of something else with soil production, you know, soil and productivity. You have, and if you have more invasive species keeping their leaves longer and then dropping more leaves, their leaves are going to have different things right. than the natives are going to have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know I mean, everything's complicated and, and we don't know what these things would do or even if they would have a significant effect or what that effect size would be. Right. But you could imagine that there might be something there that's worth looking into. Yeah. So. That kind of goes along with the rest of what they said is <laughs> <laughs> basically Bill, I have a gift. <laughs> you just need and you to... Have to accept it. <laughs> <laughs> I do. You need they need to do more study, especially within pests, pathogens and invasive species because that's gonna have big impacts on management practices, mm -hmm. you know, when we're managing for these things. They said, finally, autumn phenology changes, timing changes, they have the potential to result in a lot of ecological mismatches mm -hmm. and then dietary changes to among species. Right. So they said priority should be given to studying species that are particularly vulnerable to environmental changes. So like specialists and migrants. Right. Right. Many long-distance migrant bird and insect species are already in decline due to habitat loss. So these mismatches for long-distance migrants, they're saying, should really receive special attention. 
Right. Because these guys are disappearing the fastest. Or do we say, that's what you get for specializing and let them die off? <laughs> no. Because <laughs> then we're just going to be left with what? Catbirds, raccoons? <laughs> oh, no, not catbirds. <laughs> and then the thing they totally wrapped up with is something maybe you could look into. Mm -hmm. They said another exciting topic in much need of study is the extent to which autumn responses to climate change are genetic versus plastic. Yeah, I, I mean, that's something I feel like would be in my wheelhouse right now. Yeah. I'm definitely not going to look at that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking at equally interesting questions in carnivorous plants, but, but, uh, but someone could definitely do that. In fact, I, I would be surprised if there wasn't already some studies looking at that, because that sounds fascinating. This was 2015. Yeah. All right, that is where we're going to wrap up. So we hope you enjoyed the episode, and we want to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. We appreciate all of our patrons, but usually each month we like to take a moment and thank our top patrons. But since we forgot the list of top patrons, I'm going to put their names at the end of the episode, so stick around for that. But we want to thank our new patrons. I did write those down. So since we recorded in July, we've gotten four new patrons. So Sean Coleman, Esther Chang, our buddy Rich Kingston, and Bruce Aguilar. And, and I should mention that Sean is our buddy too. He's somebody we birdman with uh, during the summer. And a special thanks to Andrew and Celia for checking in on us and making sure we are still alive <laughs> and doing the podcast. Sorry for taking so much time, but it, it definitely felt good, you know, like yeah. we said earlier, that, that people were uh, hoping that they're still going to get more from us. Yeah. yeah, so we appreciated them emailing us, making sure we're still alive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if you have any of your own comments, questions, or episode suggestions, you can email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com. You can visit our website, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, <laughs> yeah. all those social media, all, all the social media sites. Yeah. And if you're looking for a way to support the podcast, but you can't afford to be a Patreon supporter, then you can rate us and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcatcher you use. It's a great way to drive new listeners to the podcast. And you can also share any of our episodes with friends. And remember guys, make sure you get outside or if you're a parent, get your kid outside. And if you are going outside, <laughs> you might want a nice pair of tall rubber boots. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> kind of merged segments there. There you go. So. Each month we try to give a thank you to our podcast supporter, Gumleaf USA. Yeah, and uh, both Bill and I have boots from them. We have two different styles. I have the field boot. Bill, you have the... The Royal Zip. That's yeah. It. Incredible boots. We've been using them as often as we can in these last few months. <laughs> That's right. Um, but they're incredible boots. Uh, yeah. They're very simple design, but I think they look really good. They keep your feet nice and dry. They're extremely comfortable, and they're great for nearly any type of hike that you go on. And since they're made out of 85% natural rubber, they last a lot longer than your average rubber boot. So check out gumleafusa.com. And as always, I want to remind you guys to check out Always Wandering Art. They usually provide thumbnails for us for each of our episodes. So uh, please check out their Facebook and Etsy store and show them some love. And as Steve started to say, moms and dads, get those kids outside. Let them flip over rocks, look under logs, let them get muddy and dirty. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. We hope you enjoy the episode and we will see you next month. Yeah, <laughs> next month because it's my month. So uh, it's going to happen, I promise. Keep your fingers crossed, folks. Yeah. <laughs> And as promised, I'm back to say thank you to our top patrons. So thank you to Vicki and Esther, Dean, Gavin, Jessica, John, Nick and Rebecca, Christina, we named the dog Indy, Rob, Pollywog, Jacqueline, Daniel, Orange Julian, Rachel, Diane, Ken, Susan, and Alyssa. On behalf of Steve and myself, folks, we want to thank you and all of our patrons for making this podcast possible. Thank you so much.